Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 242, Dr. Bo Branson on the Monarchy of the Father, Part 4. This is the fourth and final part of my presentation of this work by Dr. Bo Branson, in which he argues for what he says is the Eastern Orthodox view of the Trinity, what he calls monarchical Trinitarianism. And he has problems with my definitions of the term Trinitarian and Unitarian, and really with my whole narrative of the historical development of Catholic theology in general. I've edited down his five-part presentation into just these four parts. I've cut more in this last presentation than I have previously. So what this covers is his parts four and five. But I've cut a couple of very technical excursions that I think only analytic philosophers would appreciate. And I've cut them not just because they're difficult, but because I don't think they really advance the argument between us. I have left in what I think is really essential to his case against me, even to his arguments against biblical Unitarianism toward the end of this episode. So next week, I'll start to respond. I'll probably respond in two episodes. And so let's hear the conclusion of Dr. Bo Branson's presentation on the monarchy of the Father. So let's think about biblical Unitarian objections and monarchical models. Now, again, we covered these objections. You know, Trinitarian theologies tend to rely on wonky metaphysics and problematic equivocations. They tend to, you know, they seem to not really respect the biblical revelation of God as Father, um, that God is unipersonal, and so forth. So we'll just ask these questions. Now, do monarchical models, so models that just say there's one God, that's the Father, um, and then there's the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they they share the same divine nature, and so we can call them God, we can predicate theos of them, we can say that they are divine, because they are, they're not creatures, so we can call them divine or theos. But ultimately, there's just one God, that's the Father, because he's ase and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not. Okay, does that rely on any kind of wonky metaphysics? No, doesn't look like it. I mean, it's just the same thing that biblical Unitarians say, right? The one God is the Father. The only difference is that we just say that the Son and the Holy Spirit are not creatures, it has nothing to do with the relation between them and the one God. Um, they're still numerically distinct. I mean, there's no difference there, unless biblical Unitarians want to attack us on the point of having a, you know, having them be members of the same species. But that's not the argument that biblical Unitarians present. So anyway, it's the same, the same metaphysics as far as the identity between the Father and the one God goes. Does it rely on problematic equivocations? It doesn't really seem like it. It seems like it's pretty clear there's, I mean, in Greek and in the Bible, this happens. There's one use of theos when it's used with the article. I mean, biblical Unitarians also have to make this distinction themselves because theos without the the definite article is clearly predicated of the Son of God on some occasions. So biblical Unitarians have to make this distinction too. Jehovah's Witnesses do in their translation of the Bible, I mean, they distinguish between otheos with the article versus theos without the article. So 
it's just the same distinction uh, that we're making, right? So if it's a problematic uh, equivocation for us, then it's a problematic equivocation for them. Secondly, uh, one of the difficulties, that, uh, kind of a tight spot that I think Tuggy finds himself in, is that he has in print defended Samuel Clark's Trinitarian theology, and Samuel Clark makes this distinction. I mean, he says, you know, there's a sense in which the one God is just the Father, and there's a sense in which we can call uh, the Son God, and, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. It's literally... It's the monarchy of the Father. I mean, he, he just states the Eastern Orthodox view explicitly, and Tuggy has explicitly defended that as a legitimate move in print. So it's kind of a weird thing where, it, you know, if Tuggy were to want to kind of backpedal and, and say, well, this is a problem for Eastern Orthodox theology, well, then he's going to have to go back on what he said about Samuel Clark and his theology, you know, being okay. If he wants to maintain that Samuel Clark's theology is defensible and it counts as monotheism, then he's going to not be able to say that we have this problematic equivocation. On the other hand, does monarchical Trinitarianism do justice to the biblical presentation of God? Well, do God and the Father name the same person? Well, yeah, on monarchical Trinitarianism, they do. Is God a person, a single person, not a tri-personal being? Well, on the Eastern Orthodox view, yeah, he is, because it's the Father. We don't really talk about there being a triune God. Not really even sure what that would look like in Greek because none of the church fathers ever say that. We don't talk about God being a tri-personal being. There's some later, like late medieval Byzantines that use this phrase tri-hypostatic. But what they say is that God is a tri-hypostatic usia, not a tri-hypostatic hypostasis, which would be what tri-personal being would have. In other words, what they're saying is that the essence of God is triply instantiated. That's not really weird metaphysics, right? The, the essence of humanity is multiply instantiated. All universals pretty much are, are multiply instantiated. So that's, that's not a weird view. The weird view is something that I don't even know if there's a way to say it in Greek. Um, but in any case, on our view, God is a single person, a single hypostasis, namely the Father. As you saw with John of Damascus, as you saw with Abu Kura, as you saw with the, the author of this um, unfortunately titled Nature of the Triune God, which never talks about a triune God. So anyway, in our view, none of these same things seem to come up as problems. The point is, arguments that biblical Unitarians present against Trinitarianism are really just arguments for a strong monarchy view. That's the big difficulty. Biblical Unitarians want to present their readings of the Bible and their arguments as arguments against Trinitarianism, but they don't actually do that. That's not really what they're arguing for. What they really are arguing for is the strong monarchy view, right? It's just identifying God and the Father. But that's a very, very, very different issue, as we've seen, from actually criticizing the doctrine of the Trinity. Because, again, if you're a monarchical Trinitarian, then you believe in the monarchy of the Father. The point is, there's kind of a two-step process right, going on with these arguments. The first is, he really just argues for the strong monarchy view, right? And then his definitions come in and they just count monarchical models as Unitarian, even if they include three fully and equally divine persons, like in the Orthodox view, or like on Samuel Clark's view, because really, 
even though Samuel Clark kind of shies away from talking about the essence, it's clear that Clark's theology really is is essentially orthodox on all important points. So, and there's another one where, you know, again, even though he has three really fully and equally divine persons, and Clark himself would count himself as a Trinitarian, not a Unitarian, but Tuggy just says, well, he's really Unitarian. And that's because of the weird way that he's set up his definition. So there's this illicit sort of move where, again, what's happening is, think about it as you've got Unitarianism on one side and Trinitarianism on the other. What he really does is he comes in with these monarchical arguments and he knocks out the egalitarian forms of Trinitarianism. In logical space, there's all of these monarchical models of the Trinity left, but his definitions are going to come in and kind of sweep up the mess and sweep all of these monarchical models into the category of Unitarian. So what you really should do when you look at Tuggy's arguments is you really should say what that actually proves, if they're successful, is that egalitarian, or in other words, characteristically Western understandings of the Trinity should be rejected. So the real conclusion is either we should all be Eastern Orthodox or we should all be Unitarian, one or the other. That's what's actually led. That's what actually remains after his arguments come in and demolish certain options. But instead of presenting it as it actually is, which is, well, really, then you're just left with a choice between the monarchical models and biblical Unitarianism. Well, he just has his definitions come in and sort of conflate the two. So the heart of the disagreement, again, uh, between Tuggy's definitions and my own is that I distinguish the two in terms of the number of divine persons, and he distinguishes them in, in terms of the relations posited between the one God and the divine persons. So a few things should be clear about my approach. One is my approach is going to make Unitarian and Trinitarianism mutually exclusive. It's also the case that monarchical Trinitarianism will turn out to be Trinitarian not Unitarian. So you can't do this trick that Tuggy wants to do with kind of sweeping all of the monarchical models into the category of Unitarian and making it look like Unitarianism is the only option, right? You can't make that little trick work if you use my definition. So my definitions give you the right results logically uh, in terms of these being mutually exclusive theologies, but they won't let you do Tuggy's little trick, semantic sleight of hand, as I like to call it. And third, if we distinguish Unitarianism and Trinitarianism on the basis of the number of divine persons, as I just said, Tuggy's arguments lose their force against Trinitarianism entirely, right? That means it looks like my definitions, in a way, are superior because they get you the right result, again, in terms of the categories being mutually exclusive, When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson tries his hand at fixing what he says are my wrong definitions. So the question that we're going to ask then is, could Tuggy's definitions be fixed? 
somehow. So is there a way to kind of repair Tuggy's definitions so that they would be mutually exclusive after all? We could try to modify Tuggy's definitions and make them logically contrary in a couple of ways. One is we could add in the claim that Unitarians must deny that God contains persons. Again, Tuggy defines these two different kinds of theology in terms of the relations between the persons. So he says Trinitarians say that God contains these divine persons. To get it to where you can't be both Unitarian and Trinitarian at the same time, one thing you could do anyway is add in that Unitarians deny that God contains any divine persons. The other thing you could do is you could add in that Trinitarians have to deny that God equals the Father. Now that would mean that monarchical models really would have to count as Unitarian then if you did it that way. But neither of these is going to work. Suppose we tried it the first way, that adding, we say that Unitarians deny that God contains divine persons. Well, Tuggy is on record, again, he's published on this. Uh, he has a paper called Tertullian the Unitarian, where he argues that despite what scholars you know, typically say, most scholars will say Tertullian was a Trinitarian. Um, he just wasn't an Orthodox Trinitarian. He had these kind of subordinationist leanings or this or that. I mean, you know, there's various ways in which he's not quite Orthodox. And most, you know, scholars will all kind of admit that. But Tuggy has this paper where he argues actually Tertullian's a Unitarian and he's not at all a Trinitarian. And actually, the interesting thing is that by Tuggy's definitions, actually, he should have said that Tertullian was both. Because Tertullian says that God contain God, the Father, is a whole and he contains the Son and the Spirit as parts. But of course, that means, of course, that God the Father is a proper part of God. Uh, sorry, an improper part of God, right? Because he's identical to God. He's the whole, and the whole is an improper part. That's just what the word improper part means. So anyway, he should have said that Tertullian was both... Tertullian is actually a, a real-life example of one of these models where... It counts as both Trinitarian and Unitarian uh, on Tuggy's definition. But Tuggy's argued that Tertullian's a Unitarian. So if you added to Tuggy's definitions to try to fix them, to count as Unitarian, you have to deny that God contains any divine persons. Then he would have to go back on that argument that Tertullian was actually a Unitarian because Tertullian does not deny that God contains parts. He affirms that God contains parts. And that's not a very helpful strategy anyway. It would make his definitions turn out to be logically contrary, so that's good. But really, you would just end up with this result anyway, that some monarchical models would still count as Trinitarian uh, if they affirm that God contains persons. So, you know, they're not Unitarian, and they would count as Trinitarian. And then others would count as Unitarian if they deny that God contains persons, um, but they posit the existence of three divine beings. So you just get this result where some monarchical models would be Trinitarian and some would be Unitarian. And so that really wouldn't help because Tuggy needs all monarchical models to count as Unitarian to make his little kind of trick work, right? Where he sweeps them sort of under the rug, so to speak. He takes all the monarchical models and conflates them with Unitarianism. Otherwise, instead of refuting Trinitarianism in general, He just kind of, again, narrows things down to a certain version of Trinitarianism. What would happen, really, is that his his actual arguments would come in and 
get rid of the egalitarian models. And then if you've got definitions where some monarchical models are Trinitarian and some are Unitarian, it would only sweep sort of half of the monarchical models over into the Unitarian category. You'd still be left with some monarchical models that count as Trinitarian, and so he wouldn't have refuted Trinitarianism in general. So that's not really going to be helpful anyway. So what about two? So two's where the action really is. Could we just add in that Trinitarians must deny that God is the Father? That would certainly get rid of monarchical models, right? That would allow you to sweep them all out of the Trinitarian camp and into the Unitarian camp. But of course, it makes no sense out of history, right? So that's what I really, that's kind of the focus of my talk and my concern here is that it just makes absolutely no sense out of the actual history of the Trinitarian controversy. So you would get the result, for example, that all of the the very church fathers that Tuggy wants to criticize for developing the doctrine of the Trinity would turn out to actually be Unitarians and not Trinitarians. So again, he loves to point to 381 AD and say that, you know, Theodosius, the emperor, was this evil bad guy who forced Trinitarian theology on everyone. Nazianzen was a Trinitarian and uh, you know, the Cappadocians, Athanasians, oh, these guys are such bad characters. But if he takes this approach, he'll be able to do his his kind of trick with his argument. But he would then get the result that actually Athanasius was a Unitarian. Actually, St. Basil was a Unitarian. Actually, Gregory of Nyssa was a Unitarian. Actually, Gregory Nazianzen was a Unitarian. Actually, the evil emperor Theodosius was a Unitarian. Uh, and he was forcing Unitarianism on everyone. And he would get exactly the result that he doesn't want to get. And it just doesn't make any sense out of, out of history anyway. There's not any obvious way to fix Tuggy's definitions to, to make them actually be logically contrary and actually be such that it makes monarchical models turn out to be Unitarian and not Trinitarian. There's just no way to fix it. So Tuggy's definitions are just irremediably flawed. We need better definitions of what counts as Unitarian and Trinitarian. I submit, obviously, that my definitions, although they're far from perfect, are at least more on track. So I would say the best way to secure the mutual exclusivity of Unitarianism and Trinitarianism is to distinguish them on the basis of the number of divine persons in the model, rather than trying to work it out in terms of relations. I would say a better plan is just distinguish these views on the basis of the number of divine persons. But the problem is, in that case, the traditional Eastern Orthodox view, monarchical Trinitarianism, obviously counts now as a form of Trinitarianism, not as a form of Unitarianism. And so the mere fact that, say, the New Testament or a given theologian like Tertullian takes the one God to be numerically identical to the Father does not automatically make it Unitarian. And that means it doesn't necessarily count as evidence against Trinitarianism in general. So in other words, what's going on is if we do distinguish things in the way that I'm talking about that seems to be logically cleaner, you can't do the trick that Tuggy wants to do. Orthodox Trinitarian theology turns out to be a form of Trinitarian theology, just like you might expect, since it's based on the Church Fathers. The arguments that biblical Unitarians are presenting, you cannot validly conclude that Trinitarianism in general is flawed. It's only 
specifically the Western and much later egalitarian form of Trinitarianism that pops up later in the Middle Ages, traditional Orthodox theology just doesn't get hit by these kind of arguments. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson returns to the theology of the famous Anglican minister, philosopher, and theologian, Dr. Samuel Clark. said I would mention briefly Samuel Clark, and this is just another little kind of further problem. Again, Tuggy in professional publications has defended Samuel Clark on the Trinity. There's also a blog post I found where he appears to admit the adequacy of what he calls Potter derivationism, which is just kind of a weird made-up word, I guess, uh, for the monarchy of the Father. He rightly points out that this is Samuel Clark's view. Of course, he says that it's not Trinitarian because he's operating with these views that we just looked at, these these definitions that we just critiqued. So he says, well, it's not really Trinitarian, but he admits that it's, you know, that's Samuel Clark's view, and that's okay on his view. And so the problem is, though, that Samuel Clark's view is essentially the orthodox view. I mean, it's not, anyway, it's it's not uh, obviously problematic in an orthodox view. So I'll say this, there are there's certainly you know, some aspects of Clark's theology that Orthodox Christians would disagree with. But that turns out to be, if you read through, uh, the, there's, he puts his book in different sections. So one section, he just kind of gets together all of the New Testament passages that, that address the issues that he's talking about. In a second one, he tries to kind of organize the theology as a system of propositions and if you look through there, again, there's a few things that I think Orthodox Christians would disagree with, but mostly it's not really that he denies or contradicts any Orthodox dogmas. It's really just that he refrains from affirming some of them. So like he, he holds back from saying that the Father and the Son have the same essence or nature. He never denies that they have the same nature, right? He just kind of says, well, you know, this isn't really revealed in the scriptures and, and it's kind of going beyond what we, you know, what we really know, whatever. He, he seems to have a very strict view. Well, I think it's, he's inconsistent on it, but at least at these points, he has a strict view of sola scriptura. And so he doesn't exactly deny any orthodox dogmas. He just kind of holds back from affirming them. He kind of withholds judgment on them. Okay, so fine, that's fine, but there's no obvious reason why his theology is in conflict with Orthodox theology. It looks like it's mostly compatible with it. On the really critical issues, the issues that would really be critical for us, right, so issues bearing on the logical problem of Trinity, whether there's one God or not and who the one God is, on those issues, Clark seems pretty clearly Orthodox. I put Orthodox with a capital O and a lowercase o. Tuggy, in a way, I think, has kind of painted himself into a corner because he's committed in writing to saying that Samuel Clark's theology 
is pretty much okay in his view. You see, he doesn't really go into detail. He says he disagrees with it for some biblical reasons or something, but you know, he thinks it's basically a decent view. But then the problem is, well, why is it okay when Samuel Clark says it, but it's not okay when the church fathers say the same thing? Or can you find some way to, to kind of uh, find a contradiction between the two? But I don't think that he's going to find one. Again, the crucial issue for us is going to be the unity of God and the monarchy of the Father. And the problem is that Samuel Clark in Proposition 39 in the Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity explicitly affirms the monarchy of the Father. So he says the reason why the Scripture, though it styles the Father God and also styles the Son God, yet at the same time always declares that there is but one God is because, and he even uses the term, right, the, the technical term, in the monarchy of the universe, there is but one authority, original in the Father, derivative in the Son, right? I mean, there you go. That's the Orthodox view. The power of the Son being not another power opposite to that of the Father, nor another power coordinate to that of the Father, but itself the power and the authority of the Father communicated to, manifested in, and exercised by the Son. So way back at the very beginning of this lengthy talk, remember I said there's kind of some controversy about this, but I think in the Church Fathers what you see pretty clearly is that the one rule, if we're talking about the rule of God rather than the Father as the ontological source of things, the archi in the sense of authority begins with the Father. It, it, the Father is autotheos, right? And then he shares that with the Son and the Spirit. And that's just exactly what Samuel Clark says. And that's exactly why he says that there's that the Bible says there's only one God. So Samuel Clark is explicitly and clearly affirming the Eastern Orthodox view about the monarchy of the Father. And Tuggy has explicitly in writing committed to saying that, you know, Clark's view really makes a lot of sense and and this is fine on my view. I don't, I don't take any, any issue with this. Anyway, I think it's a problem. Now, I'll say this. Samuel Clark's 17th century Anglican peers, who were all egalitarians, right? they saw this as subordinationism, and they just didn't have any other category in their minds where they could kind of fit this except Arianism. So people, I mean, you know, no offense to uh, 17th century Anglicans, you know, a lot, lot of good stuff came out of the Church of England uh, and, and from that time period and so forth, but they, they weren't quite uh, uh, so up on their on their uh, patristic theology. And actually Samuel Clark actually really was. He and Isaac Newton uh, both were phenomenal students of the Church Fathers. They didn't necessarily like the Church Fathers, and they didn't always agree with them, but they definitely knew a lot about them. And an interesting thing is that if you go through and read the Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, all of these propositions that Clark gives to kind of summarize his views, he actually gives references in the Church Fathers to all of these propositions. Now, he, I think, probably thought that at some point the church fathers didn't really mean what they were saying or, you know, there really was some kind of great apostasy or something like that, even though he's quoting them and showing that they, they really were monarchical Trinitarians. But in the Church of England at that time and in the West generally at that time, Clark's opponents just kind of thought, look, you could be a modalist. Uh, you could deny, you know, you could say that Jesus was just a creature, the Son of God is just a creature, or that he's subordinate in some way. You could be an Arian, 
Um, well, if you're still saying that Jesus was a creature, or you could be an egalitarian Trinitarian, and that was the, those are the only options, right? I mean, that's just that's all they thought were the options. If you read a little bit of the debates, you know, you read Samuel Clark, you read some of the, the criticisms that he got, it's pretty clear that what really was going on was he just had this very nuanced view. And, and it is, again, it's different from the Orthodox view in some particular details, but largely it's the Orthodox view. And he just had a much more nuanced view of things, and they just couldn't quite wrap their heads around it. So they would call him an Arian, but he actually explicitly denies the Arianism because he says there was never a time when the sun didn't exist, which again is really the issue that the church fathers were most concerned about. That's really what the homoousion was all about, was the Arians wanted to say that there was a time when the sun didn't exist, and the Orthodox said no. And the way that they tried to safeguard that was with the term homoousion, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, point being, Clark's critics were wrong that this has to be understood as some kind of pernicious form of subordinationism, and it just has to be understood as Arianism. They're wrong. That's It's the traditional Eastern Orthodox view of things. For whatever reason, he can see that the critics of Samuel Clark were wrong to condemn him. They're wrong to condemn him for the content, but he seems to think they were actually right when they say he wasn't a Trinitarian even though Clark himself quite rightly denied that. He says, no, I am a Trinitarian. Clark thought of himself as a Trinitarian. But again, I mean, Tuggy falls hook, line, and sinker for these egalitarian tactics when they're talking about the church fathers. And I, I think, again, I don't think that he's being intentionally deceptive. Um, I think that he just must not be as familiar with the actual texts of the church fathers he gets them wrong. Now, I'll say this, though. Uh, most people do. So I, I've, I've never kind of faulted him for that. But anyway, so, you know, maybe he's just kind of not super well equipped for this. And, it's, and to be fair, he's a Protestant. Why should he really care, you know, super much about the church fathers? Um, but anyway, I do, I do think it would be good for him to clarify sort of what's going on and maybe maybe say something about this. But the basic dilemma, though, for him is this. If a theology is kosher when Samuel Clark articulates it, why isn't it when the Church Fathers uh, or modern Eastern Orthodox theologians do? When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson sort of summarizes up his complaints about my historical narrative. saw from the beginning, Tuggy's definitions make it look like monarchical Trinitarianism just isn't an option for Trinitarians, when in fact, number one, it's strongly supported in the patristic sources that we typically think of as being definitive of the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Church Fathers, who actually authored the Nicene and Constantinopolitan creeds, uh, who presided at the first two ecumenical councils and so forth, Two, it's the standard traditional Eastern Orthodox view, um, so it's kind of weird to say that Eastern Orthodox Christians aren't Trinitarian. Most people would say that Orthodox 
Christians are the most Trinitarian, at least in terms of emphasis. Most people think of the Orthodox Church as the Church of the Trinity. That's that's the church where, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity is the most important thing, not in the sense that other Christians, you know, deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but just in the sense of emphasis. Everything that we do is founded on the doctrine of the Trinity. When you talk to Eastern Orthodox Christians about Christology, they're going to bring it back to the Trinity. When you talk to them about ecclesiology, it comes back to the doctrine of the Trinity. When you talk to us about our theology of icons, that traces back to our doctrine of the Trinity too. Most people would say that Orthodox Christians are the most Trinitarian ones out there, um, but yet he kind of has this, this set of definitions where Eastern Orthodox Christians wouldn't count as Trinitarian. I think that's really a strange aspect of his uh, of his argument. And finally, monarchical Trinitarianism uh, is even compatible with a fairly wide range of analytic models of the Trinity, like we saw. So even though they're intended to be symmetrical, monarchical Trinitarianism is not inconsistent with them. So again, it's just strange that Tuggy's definitions kind of rule them out as as not Trinitarian. What's really important to Trinitarians? Tuggy could just sort of bite the bullet and say that Unitarianism and Trinitarianism really aren't logically incompatible. Um, And he could just insist on using his definitions and kind of changing the way we ordinarily talk about the history of Trinitarian theology and Trinitarian theology itself. But the the real question is, what's actually important to Trinitarians, right? Uh, Is it A, falling under some analytic philosopher's definition of Trinitarian? Like, is that what Trinitarians wake up in the morning and, you know, hope to do? Or is it that they want to fall within a certain historical tradition, right? So they want to believe what their church actually teaches or requires, for example, the Nicene Creed, which is monarchical. Again, Tuggy likes to say that the kind of revision that was made at the Council of Constantinople is not monarchical, but it obviously is. You just read the text. You know, the bottom line is if Tuggy comes along and says that the standard traditional Eastern Orthodox view of the Trinity is not Trinitarian, I mean, ultimately, I don't really care. I just want to be an Orthodox Christian. I want to believe what the Church Fathers say, what I think the Church Fathers said, and what the Church teaches, and so forth. So if you want to say that I don't count as Trinitarian, I mean, ultimately, who cares, right? That's my view uh, on on all of his uh, picture of how the dialectic works, how the debate works. He wants to make it look like big problems for Trinitarianism and not for Unitarianism, but his argument does nothing of the sort. So his argument, if successful, counts against Western Trinitarianism, but then he wants to use these definitions again to kind of weasel the Eastern sort of models, the monarchical models, into the category of Unitarian. And that just doesn't work uh, on multiple, multiple levels. What's gone up to this point is all a negative argument. What I've done is undercut the argument in favor of biblical Unitarianism. There really is no argument in favor of biblical Unitarianism. No, no good argument. The argument that Tuggy and other biblical Unitarians present at best would be successful only against later... Western egalitarian forms of Trinitarianism. It really doesn't have anything to do with monarchical Trinitarianism, which is the older uh, and characteristically Eastern uh, or Eastern Orthodox view. So they're just, uh, they just don't have an argument uh, against that.
that whole picture that Tuggy starts with is just completely wrong, as, as we've seen. You might say, if you're a biblical Unitarian, you might say, well, I don't have any particularly good argument against Trinitarianism in general. Uh, maybe we have a good argument against the Western form of Trinitarianism. I don't have a good argument, uh, at least in a biblical sort of argument, against uh, monarchical Eastern Orthodox Trinitarian theology. But I just, you know, don't don't buy it. Right? I just don't believe it. Uh, and I just rather, you know, I'd rather believe something else. Or I, I don't know, you know, when I read the Bible, I just kind of get something else out of it or whatever. So you might admit you don't really have any particularly great argument against Trinitarianism. You just you don't believe in it, right? I haven't really given any positive argument against biblical Unitarianism. I haven't said that you couldn't be a biblical Unitarian. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson goes on the attack, offering an argument against biblical Unitarian theologies. So here, just briefly, I want to kind of piggyback on some of the things that um, Gregory of Nyssa has said, um, and and re- in a way, this is kind of an interpretation and or elaboration of uh, Gregory of Nyssa and some things in St. Basil and others. So it may be, not only is there no good reason to be a Unitarian and to reject Trinitarianism, but it might be that um, you really can't be a Biblical Unitarian, and here's uh, here's why. Biblical Unitarianism may sort of get sandwiched between monarchical Trinitarianism and egalitarian Trinitarianism. It may be that there's no way to navigate the issue here. Biblical Unitarians want to identify God and the Father. That's kind of the big motivation for it, even though that doesn't really actually work, as we've seen, because there are monarchical forms of Trinitarianism, but that's their motivation, right? The monarchy of the Father is their their big motivation. So here's the problem, right? If you identify God and the Father too strongly, you end up being a monarchical Trinitarian. So remember back to um, the passage where I kind of analyzed the logic of, of Gregory of Nyssa's argument against the Eunomians. If you say that fatherhood is essential to God, so there's always been a God, there's always been a father, then if there's always been a father, there's always been a son, right? And so then the son is not a creature, uh, he's divine too. And that just is monarchical Trinitarianism. That actually is the meaning of the homoousion. Again, this is the thing where um, egalitarians try to act like it's very ambiguous and hard to understand or whatever, but it's actually completely clear if you just read it in the Greek and you don't come to it with any preconceived theological notions, at least it's clear enough. Um, and I would be perfectly willing to de- defend that uh, at greater length. But for the time being, the point is that's just the meaning. That, that's the point behind the homoousion is just to say that the son is not a creature. He's uncreated. He's divine, just like the father. And that's the result that you get if you say that there's always been a God, there's always been a father. If there's always been a father, and there's always been a son. 
So if you identify God and the Father too strongly, you end up just collapsing into monarchical Trinitarianism. But on the other hand, you, if you don't identify God and the Father strongly enough, you could be a biblical Unitarian, but the egalitarians are going to come back then and say, well, why not just be an egalitarian Trinitarian? So let's say you say, well, you know, there's always been a God, but there hasn't always been a Father. So God and the Father are, you know, kind of identical, but they don't exactly... They don't exactly have all of their qualities in common. So, for example, their existence, which is a big, important uh, feature of a thing, right? And so God has always existed. Um, the Father hasn't. So they're not quite identical, but, you know, they're sort of one in number. They're numerically one, but without identity, right? That was Mike Ray and Jeff Brower's view. If you do that, then, then the egalitarians like Mike Ray and Jeff Brower are going to come along and say, well, if you're... <laughs> saying that God and the Father are numerically one, but they're not quite identical because they don't have the same essential properties and modal properties and so forth, then what was so bad about egalitarian Trinitarianism, right? What was so bad about their model of the Trinity? If it turns out that in order to consistently be a biblical Unitarian, you have to end up sort of borrowing kind of wonky metaphysics from egalitarian Trinitarians— in order to make your view work. To me, that says something's wrong. <laughs> there, there's a deeper issue going on here, uh, and some, something went wrong, because the picture was supposed to be that biblical Unitarianism didn't have to rely on weird metaphysics. And now what we're seeing is, well, actually, it does. And so if that's the case, well, then it looks like, gosh, it's actually monarchical Trinitarianism that does justice to the Bible and uh, doesn't have to rely on any kind of weird metaphysics or anything, right? So that's really the view that doesn't have any problems with it. Um, it just fits hand in glove with the Bible and doesn't need any kind of weird metaphysics or equivocations on important terms or whatever to kind of do some tricks and sort of make it work. So at the very least, what happens is biblical Unitarianism gets put in a spot where it's not that it kind of has everything going for it except tradition. Uh, it has the same kind of problems as it accuses egalitarian Trinitarianism of having. So it's in kind of the same boat. But it's actually worse off, right, because egalitarians can say, well, we have this long tradition and, and our view is really popular, and your view's not. And we have wonky metaphysics, but so do you. And the problem is so that biblical Unitarians do want to maintain this biblical identification of God and the Father, but of course you don't want to collapse into monarchical Trinitarianism, and so you have to maintain that not all the same things are true of God and the Father, which is just another way of saying you have to, if you're going to be a biblical Unitarian, it looks like you have to say that Leibniz's law breaks down somehow. So it looks like you're going to have to in some way, not quite affirm that God and the Father are Leibnizianly identical, because you, you can't just substitute those two terms, salva veritate, as we say, saving the truth value. You can't just switch out God and the Father in any context, and, and it still ends up being a true statement, because God existed in 5000 BC, um, but if you're a biblical Unitarian, the, the Father didn't, um, or at least you'd have to say something like, the father existed, but he wasn't a father. <laughs> um, so maybe fatherhood's not essential to the father. Whatever you do to make sense out of that, 
It's just not going to be clear why an egalitarian Trinitarian couldn't take the same treatment on board and then extend that to the Son and the Holy Spirit too. Whatever you say to kind of pry apart God and the Father in some way. You know, on one way of doing things, biblical Unitarians just kind of turn out to be saying something trivial, uh, which I don't think they want to say. On the other way, you get this problem that if you say God's always been the Father, then um, actually you get you, you just become a monarchical Trinitarian. It collapses into monarchical Trinitarianism. So remember Tuggy's definitions here, right? I put in bold here at the bottom where he says one through three are eternally the case. There's one God who's numerically identical to the one Jesus called Father, and that's eternally the case. Remember I said arguably that actually requires monarchical Trinitarianism. So here's why. Um, again, if you, if you say that the word Father just refers directly, well then this whole thing just becomes trivial. Uh, if you say it refers via descriptive content, then if you say God is it's eternally the case that God is numerically identical to the Father, then you have to say it's eternally the case that he has the property of being the Father, and then you have to say it's eternally the case that there exists a Son, right? And that means the Son's not a creature, and you get the whole nine yards. You're, you're a monarchical Trinitarian now. And that's what I call the unfinished business of Unitarian theorizing. Um, that's just kind of a, a inside joke, maybe, I guess... Tuggy has a paper called The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing, where, um, again, I'm not sure he's that up on the church fathers, but he kind of tries to make the case, well, you know, Trinitarians have all these kind of loose ends to tie up, and they need to figure things out. What I would say is just, it actually turns out that that's the case for biblical Unitarians, um, because, again, it, just depending on how they try to work out the details of their view, it looks like they're either going to just collapse into monarchical Trinitarianism or they're going to have to actually deny the biblical identification of God with the Father or they're going to have to start sort of borrowing weird metaphysics from egalitarian Trinitarians, um, which just, you know, it doesn't mean that it's false, but it means that dialectically um, it's actually them that are in this bad, you know, uh, difficult situation with having to rely on weird metaphysics and so forth. Plus, they don't have the benefit of any kind of tradition being on their side, so they just kind of end up in last place, as it were. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson considers some possible responses and then presses what he calls the unfinished business of Unitarian theorizing and concludes his case. There's lots of ways that Tuggy could respond, and there's lots of twists and turns that, that that argument could take. It's just not obvious how a Unitarian could respond um, without relying on some kind of tricky metaphysics or philosophy of language again. So just the sort of thing Unitarians normally want to accuse Trinitarians of. 
And so whatever Unitarians come up with, um, the question is going to be, why can't uh, egalitarians use the same strategy? So the way that Aristotle kind of works out these issues is he kind of goes with the claim that things all have these essential qualities. And depending on how we refer to a thing will tell us what its essential qualities is. But then what he does is he has this kind of weird take on identity. Like Mike Ray and Jeff Brower talk about, you can be numerically one with something without being absolutely identical with it. Um, it's not that he rejects Leibnizian identity, I think. Um, it's just that he uh, has other forms of identity. Uh, but anyway, point being, he has a more complicated view on identity. If you tried to take that sort of route, right, that's exactly what Jeff Brower and, and Mike Ray used to, uh, to articulate their egalitarian form of Trinitarianism. So you're not going to be able to accuse them of wonky metaphysics. It, it actually would be a case, again, of, of Unitarians borrowing this weird metaphysics or allegedly weird metaphysics from egalitarians to make their view work. And I think that's highly highly ironic. Now, historically, the way that Arians, the way that they made it work was, was they actually did kind of shy away from the identification of God and, and the Father. You know, Alexander says, no, the problem with Arianism is that Arius says there was a time when God was not the Father, right? And if you look at Arius's actual creed, it's very interesting because the, the really philosophically astute Arians, like Arius himself and Eunomius, their strategy was just to kind of shy away from the identification of God and Father. So I'll show you this. This is from Arius's creed, his letter to Alexander of Alexandria, his bishop, when Alexander asked him, you know, why don't you put in writing exactly what you believe? What Arius does is, uh, you might think, well, he says, oh, he's going to say, I believe in one God, the Father. But as we've seen, you, you say God is the Father, and then you got to start asking if, if he's always been the Father, and if so, then has he always had a son? Here's what Arius says. He says, we acknowledge one God, alone unbegotten, alone everlasting, alone without beginning, alone true, alone having immortality, alone wise, alone good, alone sovereign judge, governor and provider of all, unalterable and unchangeable, just and good, God of the law and the prophets and the New Testament, who begat an only begotten Son before time and the ages, through whom he also made uh, both the ages and all that was made, begot him not in appearance but in reality, and he made him the Son subsist at the Father's own will, unalterable and unchangeable, the perfect creature of God. Well, you notice um, hmm, the word Father never shows up. If you're not really careful with it, you get the impression, well, he's talking about God the Father, right? I mean, he talks about one alone unbegotten, who begot an only begotten son, you know. But he doesn't define God as the Father, right? The creed says we believe in one God, the Father, right? It just defines God as the Father, I think the point there is to affirm that eternal fatherhood or essential fatherhood premise. Father is part of the definition of God uh, on the patristic view. Um, it's, it's part of who and what God, the one God, the true God is, is the Father. It's not part of his kind essence. It's what in analytic philosophy we would call part of the individual essence of God. But it's, it's nonetheless essential to him. 
But Arius doesn't ever say that God is the Father. He says, well, there's one God. He's alone unbegotten. Arius is willing to say that unbegottenness is part of the divine nature and, and it's essential to God, right? It's essential to God that he be unbegotten, but he doesn't want to say it's essential to God that he be a father because then his view would collapse into monarchical Trinitarianism. And then he says that God begat, and then at this point he even adds before the ages, but again, he still doesn't define God as father. He, le- he wants to leave the son's existence contingent, at least. Arius started out by saying that there was a time when the son didn't exist, and he I think he seems to have kind of backed away from that later and says, okay, well, the son, you know, began to exist before time, but he still wants it to be at least contingent that the son exists. And you can see how it says that that the father made the son a subsist at the father's will, right? So there are going to be possible worlds, at least, where the son doesn't exist, but the father does. Um, and so that's why he doesn't define God as father in here. But again, what biblical Unitarianism needs to do is they want to maintain that biblical identification of God and Father. And I just want to point out, that's never been done before. Okay, So we, we've never, you know, historically, again, the Arians, uh, at least the really philosophical ones, tried to kind of shy away from, from that identification, precisely because they don't want to collapse into monarchical Trinitarianism. So... But biblical Unitarianism wants to maintain that strong monarchy view, but not collapse into monarchical Trinitarianism, which that's exactly what's going to happen if God is essentially or eternally a father. So you have to say that God is the father, but he hasn't always been the father. Which is kind of a weird view. You have to make that distinction between God and the father in such a way that egalitarian Trinitarians can't just do the same thing. You're not just borrowing their metaphysics which would allow them to extend the same treatment to the Son and the Spirit. Um, so that's the Trinitarian sandwich, as I call it. So how do you do that? How do you navigate that issue? Uh, and that's what I call the, the unfinished business of Unitarian theorizing. So congratulations. Uh, we've, we've made it to the conclusion. To wrap up, uh, without keeping one eye, so to speak, on history, Tuggy's definitions might seem reasonable, um, they might even seem, you know, roughly equivalent to my definitions. And that looks like it results in this really bleak picture for Trinitarianism. You know, this this one where the doctrine of the Trinity has only the weight of tradition behind it, and biblical Unitarianism has only a lack of tradition uh, to count against it. But when we get our history right, and we get the neglected doctrine of the monarchy back into view— we end up with exactly the the reverse situation, right? So the strongest objections to Trinitarianism, um, you know, that it relies on weird metaphysics or problematic equivocations and so forth, that it doesn't do justice to the biblical presentation of God as Father, all of those strongest objections to Trinitarianism just completely lose their force. And then also we see that it actually... Biblical Unitarianism is going to need some modifications so that it doesn't just collapse into monarchical Trinitarianism. And those modifications may be fatal, um, but at the very least, uh, they're going to put it in a much weaker position. The Biblical Unitarians are going to end up having to kind of borrow metaphysics from the egalitarians. And now they not only are unpopular and non-traditional, but they also are using the same wonky metaphysics that the egalitarians are. So it's going to put 
uh, biblical Unitarianism, at the very least, is going to put it in last place. Um, so monarchical Trinitarianism will be the most likely option. Egalitarians may are going to be second, and biblical Unitarians last. Right. Once so again, once you get that doctrine of the monarchy back into view, the picture just flips on its uh, on its head. The landscape of the, this debate in philosophical theology changes drastically, and so my main point that I really want to want to say here. The history really does make a difference, okay? To all of you budding analytic theologians out there, let this be a case study. When you try to attack a doctrine that has such a long history uh, and an intricate history as the doctrine of the Trinity, without really knowing the history, you just make messes, right? So the history matters, and if you, if you really want to address the issue, you need to know the history, Thank you for uh, making it this long for those of you who've actually listened to the whole thing. I wish I had a candy bar or uh, some kind of reward for you, but thanks for listening. And uh, I may do some more of these in the future. This week's thinking music is the track Clusticus the Mistaken by Dr. Turtle. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Next week, I start to respond to Dr. Branson's many objections. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.